This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, November 25th, 2022. It is 4 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 5 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past five in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 9 p.m. in London, 10 p.m. in Paris, 11 p.m. in Kiev. Midnight in Moscow, for all you Kenny Ball fans, half past midnight in Tehran, for all you... Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 5 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, 8 a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland, and lunchtime beyond. If you are of the American persuasion, we hope you had a very good Thanksgiving, uh, the most American of holidays. We hope you checked out our Thanksgiving special 20 years ago. Thanksgiving 2002, a new website launched softly, I think that's how the marketing guys say it, uh, on the internet, steinonline.com. It was a big, messy, sprawling, decentralized internet of thousands of individual voices all linking uh, back and forth all day long back then. It isn't now. It's a tight little cartel of, frankly, evil men and their pathetic acolytes choking and restricting any views that deviate too far from the approved version on COVID, on climate, on so-called gender identity on America's laughable election systems, the search engines. Uh, Certainly Google uh, have completely perverted themselves. So if you try to look up anything remotely controversial, uh, the first 10 pages of results you get are things telling you why you shouldn't be looking up this guy in the first place before you actually get to the guy. So, so the very concept of search engines, uh, which is a relatively new one that came along with the age of the internet, has been completely... First, Google became the biggest company in the world, and then Google actually destroyed their own product. Uh, so once they'd got control of all the searches in the world, uh, then they decided 
Okay, we control access to all human knowledge now, uh, so we're going to restrict it. Um, so we're sliding rapidly. This is my big thought on this 20th anniversary. We're sliding rapidly into a new dark age where, as a practical matter, huge amounts of the vast store of accumulated human knowledge are being vaporized. And yet, here we are. We're still here two decades later. We're still thriving, albeit one of a far smaller number of customized web operations. Almost everything else is Facebook, Twitter, even Substack is a bit too one-size-fits-all for my tastes. Uh, some of the lads from the early days are still with us. Uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Insta Pundit, uh, the fellas at Powerline. I had... Uh, uh, some uh, had a drink with John Hinderacker, who happened to be in London a few days ago. I just sort of uh, bumped into him, and uh, I'm glad to see that he and his pals are still here. Kate McMillan, Small Dead Animals, uh, the queen of Canadian blogging, she's still here. But I think of all the other voices that have fallen away in the last 20 years and which wouldn't even get to be heard now. Wouldn't get to be heard at all. If you've been here uh, checking out Stein Online since that first Thanksgiving, I thank you. If you've come along in more recent years or weeks, I thank you too. I'm always uh, glad to... Whoops! <laughs> Sorry, I just knocked the microphone over. I haven't gotten any more professional over 20 years. Uh... <coughs> Uh, I was a lot more professional, in fact, uh, 20 years ago. Let me just uh, let me just see if I can adjust it. Um, <coughs> now I'm coughing. Can't find the cough button. Uh, it's all going wrong. Uh, that's the way we celebrate our 20th. We, we don't just celebrate it by doing everything wrong. On this 20th birthday, we got 20% off at the Stein store. So if there's a book of mine... Uh, or some other uh, trinket that you haven't yet picked up. You can get 20% off at the Stein store. And we've uh, launched our 2023 cruise, on which the one and only Mr. Snurdly from my happy days at the Rush Limbaugh show. They were, they were very happy days, as I think about it. A lot of the things uh, I took, write about and talk about just occurred offhand, en passant while I was guest hosting for Rush so it was a good it was it's a good was a good place to float uh little ideas and and um so Mr. Snurdley's going to be on the cruise and so is Michelle Backman she's a fantastic guest to have on a cruise uh because she gets along with everyone so splendidly and we'll also have some of your favorites from the Mark Stein Show, like Ava Villardingerbroke and Alexandra Marshall and Leilani Dowding. So lots of reasons to come on the Mark Stein Cruise, and we hope to see you on it. And then there'll be Tal Backman and uh, some and Andrew Lawton, our cruise regulars. Let's uh, get to your questions, because that's what it's about. You know how this thing works. Uh, anyone on the planet, all 8 billion, it's gone up now to 8 billion, uh, 8 billion people around the planet free to listen. Uh, you only have to be a Mark Stein Club member if you want to ask a question. So if you have no desire to ask a question, uh, don't bother joining the club. <laughs> and uh, then uh, you, won't, you won't feel cheated 
because he had no desire to ask a question. This first question comes from Patrick Pierce on our 20th birthday. 20, says Patrick. Always something to celebrate. However, when I turned 20 half a century ago, I left behind me much of the teenage frivolity so prevalent for one's second decade of life. Now, however, life and societal norms are hyper-focused on teenage frivolities with infantile hysteria as solutions. When will adult attitudes and mature conversation return to the public square? I fear most for my grandchildren, as their parents are too busy just caring for them and ensuring they tiptoe through eggshell minds at every turn, just trying to be normal. Stop the earth, I want to get off. It's... The trend was present 20 years ago. I was certainly writing about it 20 years ago. I think I uh, wrote something about it in the American Spectator and the British Spectator, a couple of other places. But you, you make a good point. We, ours, is get, ours is a culture getting ever more infantile. Uh, that's certainly the trend line. And you can tell, I, I made this point again, it was just a sort of throwaway point a couple of episodes ago. But if you look at any, almost any newsreel footage from uh, the time they started having newsreel footage, so we're going back a century, but then you look at it in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and you just look at a street scene, people, you take, any, take your own city if you can find uh, newsreels of it, but if not, take New York or London or wherever you want. And the people who are walking along look like a grown-up culture. And they don't now. We don't dress as grown-ups. We've extended adolescence, as far as the dress code's concerned, well into uh, middle age. And the question is whether that, you know, I, I, in fact, I had a, uh, a, a, a someone come up to me on the Mark Sign cruise, uh, an Irish member of the club, who didn't, didn't like that point when I made it. Uh, and just thinks we're all more relaxed now. But we're relaxing ourselves off the cliff uh, when you, uh, in terms of that extended adolescence. Because, it's, because we now have public policy concerns to match the way we perambulate in spongy children's footwear and... Uh, and and uh, and uh, adolescent dress and sipping out of children's drinks out of huge cups with straw things that used to be left for children to do. And funnily enough, whether that is that, just as this uh, Mark Stein club member said on the cruise to me, that we're just all more relaxed and casual now, or whether we are actually more infantile is an interesting point, but we have developed public policy preoccupations to match uh, the the childish affect of our society. Uh, So that is, if you're you're preoccupied by uh, millenarian uh, horror stories, like the planet is going to end in eight years' time, or if you're uh, preoccupied by insanely trivial self-expression as the be-all and end-all of life. So 
you, you have you decide that the pronouns that have existed through all languages for, uh, for the entirety of functioning human society aren't, want, aren't for you anymore, and you want to be pl- plural. You want to be addressed by plural pronouns. These are shallow things. These are childish things. uh, We often get in the comment threads people saying, oh, you know, it all comes back to God, it all comes back to Christianity and the rest of it. And I know a lot of atheists don't want to hear that. Uh, But in fact, you know, an atheist has his atheism girded uh, more effectively in a believing society. Uh, which is why atheists of the 19th century were were serious men. They thought enough about God to decide they didn't believe in him. It's not just that they didn't believe in God uh, because they'd rather get rat-assed on a Saturday night and, uh, and, and uh, go clubbing uh, and bang, bang their heads around to techno music or whatever it is now, so they don't want to wake up early and have to go to church. That's a much shallower kind of atheism. And the stuff that has replaced faith is too shallow to have any purchase on us. Whatever comes next uh, will, be, will be something serious in terms of what it believes. But, but the idea that uh, some stupid society with half-wits going, oh, yes, I don't like that. I feel it's too restrictive having 57 genders because mine's the 58th, and it's just for me. So we're going to have 58 genders now. Uh, th- th- this, th- I had a cute line, and it's not really cute because it's true. You know, this is what we'll be talking about when the Mullers nuke us. Something bad is coming. Whether it's some provocation from the Mullers, which is where this website came in back in the old jihad days, or whether it's just something subtler from the Chicoms, and in fact they may already have launched it in the same way that you know COVID nineteen was swimming around sort of uh, five months before that two weeks to flatten the curve. I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> so that's. But something other than what we have been is going to be here if we don't reverse all this childishness, as Patrick says. So 20 is a good... 20, you're grown up. If you go to war graves, if you go... I've talked about this before, but if you go to the Commonwealth war graves, it's always very moving to me. Because you think of what your life might have been with a different roll of the dice if 1939 had happened in... 1979 or 1989 or you know you'd be one of the names on that grave those graves and they're and they're what would now be boys we would now be oh well they or transitioning or whatever but they'd be people who would be sitting in college doing something that's not worth going to college for and not worth paying a quarter million dollars for um, but they would be, uh, and they would be thinking so bored and so unchallenged that they're thinking of changing their pronouns. Whereas all those boys you see on those markers on Normandy, uh, on those graves, 18, 19, some of them lied about their age, like uh, my late friend Peter Worthington. I think he was 16 
when he joined the Royal Canadian Navy. He lied about his age. I, I, he, I think I forget what age he had to be. But they were, they were what we would now consider children, and yet they were men in a way that, you know, uh, fellas deep into middle age these days aren't really men. Anyway, I thought that was a great uh, first question from Patrick Pierce on this, our 20th birthday. And I thank you for it, Patrick. Great stuff. Uh, let's see what else we got here. We're, look, we're taking the long view on this 20th birthday. Eric Dale says, Mark and fellow club members, the Thanksgiving feast has me reflecting on how I have never worried about having enough to eat. For this, I can thank generations of advances in agriculture and the hard work of our farmers. Yet in the Netherlands and in other advanced countries, our elites are trying to solve a solved problem. Food, unlike crypto, can't just be conjured out of thin air or computer. What is possessing our betters to screw around with their own food sources? Well, they're not screwing around with their own food sources, Eric. They'll still have food. It's not just the Netherlands, it's happening in Canada, happening in Ireland, happening in America. You know, Bill Gates owns more farmland than anybody. Why do you think he's doing that? Um, you put it very well, you know, they're trying to solve a solved problem. They're, it's almost there, Eric. What they're actually doing is de-solving the solved problem. And that is true with food, that's true with transportation you know the point the point about the whole electric car rubbish is that unless you're completely innumerate you understand that by the time california abolishes the internal combustion engine there is and i pick california because that's a state that you don't want not to have a car in there's no way of moving around like the coastal liberal la la land areas you've got to sit in gridlock for hours a day it's very hard to get around any other way and then you've got the great hinterland where it's hours and hours between towns and you want a car for that too and they're proposing you know they're saying uh we're getting rid of the internal combustion engine by 2030 that means there's not going to be mass transportation. That means wherever you are, that's where you'll be staying. They're disinventing. You know, we do a lot of 19th century literature, a lot of 19th century poetry at Stein Online, uh, because that was the greatest invention, as whoever it was said, uh, the greatest invention uh, of the 19th century was invention. It was the age of invention. And they were fundamental things, conquering distance, conquering night with the electric light bulb. All these things are things that the, the men who matter in this world want to disinvent. That's what they're doing. They're disinventing the basics. They're disinventing mass movement. They're disinventing food. And the, just to go back to what I was saying about Rush, the, the parochialism of the American media doesn't help here because quite, quite naturally, having been the world's dominant power since 1950, uh, you think, well, why should I pay any attention to something that some Belgian guy says or some Slovene says or whatever? Well, the reason you should 
is because, A, you're no longer the global hyperpower. China has supplanted you. China's the one they all kiss up to. No one kisses up. In case you haven't noticed, no one kisses up to Joe Biden. So that's telling you something right there. But secondly, it's because we are governed. When people talk about global elites, the point is, I, I use this as a throwaway line with Nigel the other night, but I think it's true. You could swap these, the group of people who meet at G7, uh, Davos, uh, G20, COP27, all these things they go to, they're virtually interchangeable. You know, Justin could just as easily be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and uh, Jacinda could be uh, Prime Minister of uh, Canada and all the rest of it. They don't come from anywhere anymore, these people. They all... Uh, and what's interesting is what Bill Gates, for example. Bill Gates was in the Houses of Parliament with Keir Starmer, who's likely... Sir Keir is likely to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, or uh, certainly the next Labour Prime Minister. We may get through a few more Tories before then. But like, so Bill Gates is just jetting in, he's meeting people, he's all that. This is the thing, we're governed. The World Health Organization, uh, again, the parochialism of American media doesn't help. Ah, the WHO there, it's just some foreign thing, you don't need to pay any attention. We're doing these guys a favor because, uh, you know, old, old school dominant powers were empires, uh, but we instead decided to set up the United Nations and have these international bodies and pretend that, you know, Somalia is just as important as America. Well, the, the interesting thing is that everybody signed up for that WHO treaty. I mean, basically, every, <clears throat> every aspect of life, whether you're talking about uh, infectious diseases it themselves, or whether you're talking about uh, digital identity... These people who jet around, yakking it up at the G7 and the COP27 and the G20, they're what matter. They're the guys who matter. And so if all you're just like focused on, this crap, this trivial crap, American talk radio died with Rush. It's just embarrassing. The, the trivial drivel that these guys peddle, um, you know, these guys are all making plans for you. Oh, well, I like... Uh, who do you like in 2024? Uh, you know, uh, Ted Cruz is up two points in Iowa. Who gives a crap? You don't understand. They've, they've, they've essentially moved us into a post-democratic era. And that's when... You know, oh, well, we're not a uh, democracy, we're a republic. No one's a democracy unless you're talking about somewhere like Switzerland, a direct democracy. We're talking about responsible government, which is the phrase used in in British imperial history. It's responsible to the people. Do do the the fellows making who who where do you go to vote out Dr. Tedros at the WHO? The Indonesian health minister who announced at the G20 that uh, that uh, there are going to be vaccine passports. Uh, everyone's agreed to it. Where do you go to vote out that Indonesian health minister? You know, our future has been screwed. And de-screwing it is going to be very difficult. Bill Holcomb writes, Hi Mark, 
Don't you think that a good deal of what is so wrong in the US today was encapsulated in the speech George W. Bush made from atop a rubble pile just after 9-11 in an anti-Buckley moment, a faux-conservative US president stood athwart history and effectively shouted, screw it, when he told Americans to just go to the mall. Uh, He proceeded shortly thereafter to create what is now the fourth largest government agency whose sole benefit accrues to manufacturers of blue rubber gloves. As you've always said, politics trails culture. So I think that mall, mall, mall moment, how do you say it? I can't, forgot the American pronunciation, because I've been doing the GB News show, so we talk about the mall and pal mall. How is it? I've forgotten what it is now. Mall, 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 mall. Uh, I think that mall moment was the emerging tip of a giant iceberg of complacency, entitlement, and historical ignorance, which had been forming for a very long time. Yeah, I don't know whether... Did he do the just go to the mall, just go shopping? You know, America lost the war on terror. America lost the war on terror. It wound up losing it militarily. I thought we'd at least have some sort of pretense of a military victory while we lost on all the other fronts. Like, for example, the only thing that matters about 9-11 and the day that everything changed is that we doubled the rate of Muslim immigration to the Western world uh, to the point where we, we they instead of them being which makes it very difficult to fight wars because instead of them being sort of strange exotic foreigners on the other side of the planet uh they're now all living amongst you and it's islamophobic to talk about uh the slightly more uh, disturbing aspects of their culture like beheading people or female genital mutilation well we did that we chose to double, yeah, yeah, and, and Bush was wrong on that. You know, his first thing, it wasn't him. It was the same with the uh, leaders of almost every Western nation. So it was, these things were in place. Even, oh, the first thing that happened, they, they were, did you hear? They've, uh, they've, uh, they've knocked down the Twin Towers in New York. They flew two planes into them. They killed thousands of people. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Uh, get me, book me the nearest mosque. I need to go to be driven to a mosque to be photographed with Muslim community leaders to show how much I like them. I don't, I don't remember FDR doing that uh, after Pearl Harbor. I don't remember him uh, sitting in the White House saying, can you uh, find me a Japanese restaurant and uh, take me along for a photo op? It, that's a form of decadence. The mall thing was also, that was beyond decadence. That was actually stupidity. Because uh, armies don't win wars, nations win wars. Because nations are all, you have to be all in on every front. And the idea that you can have a professionalized soldiery and you just, as Bush said, oh, just leave, these guys are professionals. We've outsourced the whole thing to them. Yes, yes, yes. It was an attack on the home front and thousands are dead and there's a huge smoking crater in the middle of uh, New York City. But 
don't give it a moment's thought. We've outsourced it to a uh, an elite professional soldiery who'll take care of it. You can't win a war. Nations win wars. Armies don't win wars. And I thought when I first used that line, which is almost 20 years ago now, I thought, I think actually this week, I think when Stein Online launched 20 years ago, that was when the Department of Homeland Security was uh, finally enacted into law. Again, uh, some, something I uh, uh, objected to at the time. I objected to it on Thatcherite grounds. And again, this is a big thought on this 20th anniversary. I objected to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security on Thatcherite grounds, because Mrs. Thatcher's great line was that if you create a bureaucracy to manage the problem, you'll never be rid of the problem, because they have no interest in that. So if you have a Department of Homeland Security, it's just going to be the TS, TSA-type stuff. But it's actually... I un, Mrs. Thatcher and I didn't slightly underestimate it. In this case, if you create a Department of Homeland Security because foreign jihadists are waging jihad on you, 20 years later, you know, uh, they don't need to wage jihad because they're, they're living in all the major Western cities, and in many of those Western cities, they're sitting on the councils, they're holding prominent positions, they're in parliaments uh, and local legislatures, and instead the tools intended to defeat the foreign jihadists, are now being used on the domestic population. Again, looking back at it, across 20 years, uh, that shoe bomber, uh, was, was, which wasn't 9-11, it was shortly after 9-11, the guy who tried to light up his shoes, I think it was on an Air France flight from Paris to wherever, to, to somewhere in America, but they all jumped on the guy and, and put out his shoes as he was trying to light them. And the net result of that is that Americans shuffle shoeless uh, through their airports until the end of time. Uh, the, the, the war was turned inward, and it all became about control. And you think, well, why would they be doing that? And then the COVID comes along, and it all massively expands to every other area of life. And you think, oh, yeah, that's, that's why they're doing it. Thank you for that. That is, we've, we've having some uh, crackerjack questions so far. I, I'm, as I said, I'm taking the long view on this our 20th birthday. Uh, but we do have time for a musical interlude because it's not just our birthday. It's Petula Clark's uh, pet uh, Sally, as she was when she was a very little girl, Sally. And then her daddy uh, started calling her Petula at some point because he thought it would be a better stage name. But uh, I don't know how many people call her Sally uh, these days. Um, but anyway, Pet turned 90 a few days ago, and she's had a phenomenal career. She's been a star for over eight decades. She's still out there touring and writing songs. She was on stage Eight shows a week in Mary Poppins in the West End just before the COVID hit and the two weeks to flatten the curve destroyed the West End Theatre. I don't know anyone who has a bad word uh, to say about Petula Clark. Six years ago when we did a little New Year number for the Mark Stein show, I, 
of course, asked Pete Caldwell, our uh, great guitarist, to do it with me because he'd done it on the record. But Pete at the time uh, was touring with Petula Clark. I think they were somewhere in Scotland on that night. Um, and the minute uh, and the minute she heard about it, she wouldn't hear of Pete not because Pete wanted to do my little telly gig. And the minute uh, Pet heard about it, she wouldn't hear of Pete not doing my little gig and insisted he have the night off so he could play guitar for me rather than for her, which is a thousand times more rewarding. Uh, one day, Tony Hatch played her a tune. And she said, she heard the tune once, and she said, if you come back with words as good as the tune, I'll record it. Here is Petula Clark's signature song, number one, all over the world. Il y a plus dans cette ville la joie qu'il y avait avant. Dans le temps, je suis perdu dans cette ville sans toi, toi qui m'aimais pourtant. Dans le temps, je m'en vais seul au long des roues retrouver le passé d'un amour qui n'existe plus mais qui a commencé. Dans cette ville, j'ai beau chercher, mais plus rien. J'ai beau chercher dans les rues, mais pourtant c'est en vain. Tu sais, dans le temps, comment s'aimer? Oh oui, dans le temps, je m'en souviens. Oh oui, dans le temps, qui a passé depuis dans le temps? Dans le temps, tout le monde. Sai con quanta ansia aspettai di rivedere te Ciao ciao Ora di te non voglio perdere mai neanche un attimo Ciao ciao Diventeranno facili i baci dell'estate Passeremo insieme cento ore innamorate Ma poi verrà il giorno che partirò alla stazione verrai la mano tu agiti ciao ciao io sto per piangere ciao ciao il treno va in grido ciao ciao non ti scordare di me ciao 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 Irgendwo wirst du vielleicht mich dort sehen, wenn wir uns beide begegnen, das wäre schön. Petula Clark, Darnaton, Chow Chow, and whatever the German one was. Oh, they kept the downtown, but they actually called 
the song Get in die Stadt. Uh, and that's my hastily cobbled together fusion of three of her various number one foreign language iterations of that song throughout her career. Pet Clark has had hits in multiple lingos. Downtown, uh, words and music and a fabulous arrangement by Tony Hatch. I think I'm going to be... Uh, Seeing Tony uh, next weekend, or maybe it's the weekend after, and maybe he'll bring Pet along, because he sometimes does. Uh, it all began for Petula Clark at the age of nine in 1942. The world at war, and she and her dad were in the audience for a BBC radio broadcast for the troops at the Criterion Theatre in Piccadilly Circus, which, if you know it, is deep underground. And the show was delayed because of a German air raid, and Piccadilly Circus took a hit. Um, and because they were already underground, they couldn't go anywhere, and it's one thing to be in an air raid when you're at home and nowhere to go, and it's quite another thing when you're in a crowded theatre and you're already underground, and it's not clear there is anywhere else to go. So the crowd got jittery and panicky, and in order to calm them down, the BBC producer asked if someone would like to come up and sing a song to get everyone settled. And Pet put her hand up, little nine-year-old Pet put her hand up, uh, and they found a little wooden box for her to stand on so she could reach the mic. And the song went down so well that the orchestra rose as one to applaud her when it ended. And uh, the producers then had her do it on the live broadcast when the air raid all clear sounded. So she owes the launch of her career to the Luftwaffe, uh, which is why she was very sporting to sing downtown in German just now. Here is that first song of her. She loves, she loves this song, uh, and she still knows it uh, over eight decades later, and she'll sing, still sing it for you if you ask her about it. Uh, but here it is, as reprised by Miss Clark just a few years later on an early BBC TV show called Television Tea Party. An old song even then, over 120 years old now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to interrupt the dancing just for a moment, but we don't want you to go away. In fact, we want you to come this way because we have a little surprise for you again. This time we're going to ask you to gather round as we introduce a, a young lady that you all know extremely well. You're going to be very pleased to see her, I know, and I'm going to ask you to join me as we welcome her now as she is about to strike what we consider a sentimental note. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Petula Clark! <laughs> Pet, darling, they're all yours. Tell them what we arranged about that little one. Oh, yes, well, uh, <laughs> you've left me hanging on a limb here, haven't you? Well, this is a song which I sang on my very first broadcast, and dear Cecil Madden, who is the host tonight, he was the producer of that program, and so for Cecil, this is for you. Oh, yes? Sweetest little fella, everybody knows, we don't know what to call him, but he's mighty luck roll. Looking at his man with eyes so shiny blue, it makes you think that heaven 
Mighty Lacquer Rose, an American song from 1901 by Ethel Burt Nevin and Frank Lebby Stanton that made Petula Clark a child star 80 years ago. Happy 90th birthday uh, to a great lady of song. Let's uh, get back to your questions. We have a question from... Mary, uh, Mary B, who said, well, not really, uh, this it didn't, doesn't begin with a question. It goes, hi, Mark, thanks for keeping me sane the last 20 years. Uh, that's a that's a significant accomplishment on my part, if that's true, Mary. Uh, I'm honoured by that. Uh, Mary says, I see that the UK is soon to lift the restrictions on liquids over 100 millilitres in carry-on. What took them so long. Yeah, it's just been announced. It's not that soon, actually, Mary, that in 2024, the restrictions on liquids is going to be lifted in the UK. I assume it won't be lifted for flights to the United States because the United States uh, is slightly at odds with... Uh, I, I mentioned the other day, uh, just as a kind of throwaway line, the business with the shoes the the other countries it doesn't matter whether you're in australia or whether you're in france whatever you don't have to take your shoes off when you're boarding the plane so what that means whereas you still do if you board a plane in vermont or you board a plane in minnesota so what that means is either that everybody else the french the australians the danes the slovenes someone came up with some device that can check as you walk through that your shoes are safe and decided, ha, 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 but we're not, we're not going to share it with the Americans. That'll show them. Or the American thing of taking off your shoes is just total bollocks. Uh, and, and these things, I remember, well, maybe we, uh, maybe we should dig that out and play it on Rush. I'd once just did some little thing. I'd had a terrible had a particularly terrible time uh, uh, at the TSA. This, again, the early years of the TSA, I don't know what it is, it's 15 years ago now. And uh, so I was mocking it on Rush, and I was actually astonished by the pushback from conservative listeners who, who thought that the thing to do is just to rally round the government bureaucracy. We're, we're the party of small government. We believe in small government, uh, except when there's war on, then government can do no wrong, and it should just be as big as it wants to be. And if it takes us, if you have to get to the airport three hours earlier than you would because the, the, uh, the line to get into the security area is all backed up and uh, tailing out of the airport, 
Uh, and in fact, that in itself, as I've said, as I made the point, they actually did it at Istanbul. They, some jihadists thought, oh, that, uh, Stein made a good point in his column. I think we should give a demonstration. If you have a long security line, you don't have to get into the secure area of the airport. You can just blow up the security line. What we, what, uh, my attitude to this um, sort of firmed up as these 20 years went on. As I said, I was opposed to the Department of Homeland Security basically on Thatcherite grounds. But I've now uh, come to the conclusion that this stuff is created by these guys to see if it can be used against us, to see if it can be used for because a compliant cowed population is easier to govern. And whereas the things that... Uh, in in the case of George W. Bush, things that d just seemed like s society notes, you know, the fact that his family is very well connected with all the Saudi guys and all the rest of it, actually seemed more uh, relevant very quickly because it became clear, which is the same situation today, that there's the global elite's loyalties or certainly for the Western members of the global elite, because I don't think it's true for the Chinese or whoever. But for the Western members of the global elite, uh, their sympathy is with their fellow members of the global elite rather than with the losers in flyover country or whatever, however you put it now uh, these days. You know, so these things are... There are reasons why we lost the war on terror, and it's because uh, the dis it is because things were arranged as distractions to distract the fact distract us from the fact that doing anything serious about Muslim immigration to the West, which is remorseless, you know the, the Albanians, the Albanian men, thousand a night arriving, they're uh, Muslim men. Um. And and that actually is that actually so so the stuff that the Western governments do, it was true for large parts of the war on terror. It's true now, is to distract. I like a lot of the stuff that was done in COVID is to distract us from uh, actually uh, taking an interest in the fact that Fauci and U.S. taxpayers were doing gain of function research at a dodgy Chicom lab. <laughs> so uh, almost everything they want you to be talking about is there because there's something they don't want you to be talking about. Jack Morris says, Hi, Mark. You've often spoken of the importance of having interests and pastimes that are non-political, and we are better for reading and listening to you on arts, music, and culture. If you ever decide to slow down, are there things you would still like to learn or places you haven't been to that you would like to see. Do you see yourself staying in America? That is to say, do you have faith that America can rebound and survive? Um, they're two different questions. Uh, I see myself staying in America, but I don't have faith uh, in that America can rebound and survive. I don't want to have faith. I want to see reasons that... I'm. I'm I'm stuck here. I'm at an age where it's very difficult to, you know, I can go and spend a few weeks hither and yon. I can do my show from London. I can do my show from Ukraine. I can, 
I can uh, move around and do that. But uh, I, I chose to raise my kids in small town New Hampshire. It's very difficult to, uh, at a certain point, to just pick up and say, I'm done with all that. And it's not connected with me. You, you know, this, if, you, if you're clever, you'll be able to find ways of mitigating the disaster that is all around. But that whether America can rebound and survive, I think about it now. I think about, because it's the 20th anniversary, I think of the squandered opportunities. I wrote a piece in the summer of 2002 in the Specky. I think it's in my book, uh, The Face of the Tiger, which came out when we launched Stein Online because we had a sort of special offer for that. And uh, this would be, so we're talking about August 2002, and I was saying he'd blown the opportunity because if you, if you recall those first days after 9-11, there was enormous social solidarity. Because even a brain-dead liberal uh, takes notice of two huge skyscrapers being destroyed in front of his eyes. And then what happened very quickly is that people just retreated to their tropes. So... They, there's the sort of generalized do-gooder who said that, uh, you know, uh, poverty uh, causes desperation, desperation causes this, blah, 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 a breed set. So in other words, these people, because they're from poor countries, they're driven to hijack planes and fly them into American buildings, which is rubbish. The people who pulled off 9-11 were actually wealthy. They're wealthier than most of the Americans face down in the heroin and the meth and the fentanyl. Uh, the, the, the Mohammed Atta was a mid, super, uh, super uh, comfortable, privileged, middle-class Egyptian boy with a, a and college degree from a fancy German university. You know, so it was all, but people retreat to their tropes. So then the more specialized trope retreaters Started saying, well, this is all to do with climate change. Climate change, again, doesn't apply to Mohammed Atta, the guy who did it. I mean, again, it's the, it's the, I mean, it's hard not to get really angry at the stupidity that is indulged here. But there were people who I remember reading in my newspaper, oh, this is, it's big. climate change has caused soil depletion. And that's why a, uh, a, uh, a, a middle-class Egyptian uh, with a degree from a fancy German university is flying planes into buildings. You know, it all started very quickly. And Bush never, ever, ever made a serious effort. He did, the, again, this stupid parochial thing. Oh, they envy us our free... No, they don't envy you your freedom. They've looked at it, and they think it leads to decadence uh, and despair, and they don't want any part of it. Uh, so they're not envying you. It. It's not because they, they think, oh, they're sitting in Saudi Arabia thinking we don't have enough Britney Spears types around here. I said, th I said this 20 years ago. But again, it's the lack of cultural pushback from Bush that helped cost him the war now when so so we're 20 years late now trying to as you put it rebound and survive jack 
They've had 20 years in which we've just continued down the same stupid path. Now, when you say uh, we're better for reading and listening to you on arts, music and culture, I've never liked the narrowness of politics. Uh, What's funny, I'll tell you what's funny to me. I saw some tweet about this and some guy reminded me that I'd actually made the same point 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, everybody talks about the culture war, or fighting the culture war. Yeah, the uh, Republicans, they think they can leverage the culture war. Uh, Conservatives can leverage the culture war, culture war, culture war, culture war. And this guy made the point. He goes, you can't fight a culture war if you don't produce any culture. If all the culture is produced by one side, you lose. And that's, that's what happens. I said that, you know, the money you give to PACs that whatever it was, the billion dollars that Mitt Romney spent in 2012, and I said whatever it was two days afterwards on Rush, that that would have been better spent if uh, the people who came up with that billion dollars, you know, uh, got around and bought a movie studio or a TV network or whatever. All these bundlers for the Republican Party, they're very good at raising money. It's, it's, it's a, in, in American politics, that's the skill you want, the ability to raise money. But if you can raise money on that scale, you really would be doing the world a favor if you bought Warner Brothers or you bought Walt Disney or you bought whatever. And instead, just b- being able to raise money for some stupid pack Uh, that elects some guy who votes to confirm Mitch McConnell as Senate leader, Eh, you know, you're not going to make any difference to anything that way. Uh, If you say, if I decide to slow down, are there things you would still like to... Well, I would love, I would still love, I always wanted to orchestrate. And I've, I've taught myself a fair bit over the years just by watching people do it. And uh, I'm, I'm distinguishing here between orchestrating and arranging. Uh, but I would love to. I would love to be able, before I die, to orchestrate a full something for a full string section. I would just love to do it. But the point. The point is, you know, and you, you can see people aren't interested. The politicians are too boring to be interested in, which is why a lot of these shows now, the talk radio thing. They're not talking about, when they go away from politics, they're talking about sports or they're uh, talking about favorite Marvel comics, superheroes. We don't, we, we're excluded from that world. So we then have these desperate things where we're trying to prove that, oh, the latest reboot of Batman is really conservative because some guy says some men just want to take want to watch the world burn, and that's obviously a reference to the war on terror. No, it isn't. The war on terror isn't done by guys who just want to watch the world burn. Maybe some school shooting is, but the war on terror is being waged in advance, in, 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 in the cause of a specific ideological purpose from people who think Western civilization is A, decadent, but B, by, dying. So we spend our whole time, you know, these desperate, pitiful things where so-called conservative commentators twist themselves into pretzels to prove that X-Men 37 is secretly conservative. It's all rubbish. Make your own X-Men 37 in the end. 
make make your make you know i occasionally get asked why we do a lot of 19th century novels here well the reason is because you have to actually go back a ways to find so-called conservative literature conservative movies conservative plays whatever you want to call it and like this guy tweeted today you can't fight a culture war if you don't produce any culture thank you for that uh, jack morris roy epen dr roy from Montreal, he he lives, or he did before COVID, lived the most glamorous life, and he can he says congratulations on twenty years, Mark. I met you many years ago at the Ontario Legislature. Uh, that's yeah, that's right at Queens Park in Toronto, and a uh, lot of lot of old. Uh, friends uh, were uh, there. Uh, Rick McGuinness, who now does Rick's Flicks, were, was there, and Kathy Shadle and all the rest of it. Roy, Roy continues, I was devastated by the death of our sovereign lady, but was glad to see the seamless succession. Four billion people watched Her Majesty's funeral. If only His Majesty's UK government actually respected the will of the people. You know, I agree with Dr. Roy that constitutional monarchy is a pretty good system. And what has been disturbing to me the last three years, and I would rather, I think there are defects in the American, I think that I, you know, again, I don't want to get into the don't wave that constitution at me, but I don't think actually combining the head of government as with the role of head of state, is uh, a smart move. Um, and particularly in these hyperpartisan times, it's not a good thing for, a, uh, for any society to basically, depending on the result of, depending on the state of the machines in Maricopa County, uh, depends on which half of the country doesn't recognize the head of state as head of state. So uh, I don't, but, but, you know, as I said, this, in a way, these are, we're arguing about nuances because we're all going off the cliff. It doesn't really matter whether you go off the cliff as a constitutional republic or a constitutional monarchy. The salient point about going off the cliff is the going off the cliff part. Um, but it was, it's been disturbing to me these last three years, Roy, and I'm sure to you too, that uh, some of the worst abusers of liberty, as traditionally understood, have been in His Majesty's dominions, have been in, uh, not so much in England, but in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And it, it gives me pause that and i uh i too was shocked by the death of our sovereign lady uh dr roy but i do i did not i was not comfortable when she made that remark about people who didn't get the vaccines being selfish i don't i think i the last i i prefer to i have I'm, not, I'm sure I don't have as many happy memories <laughs> of encountering the royal family as you do, um, but I'm, I have enough happy memories of the Queen, and I am, you know, when you get to a great age, I'm inclined to overlook the last three years, but I am disturbed 
at how easily and with what zeal. I mean, yeah, I think it's this weekend. Uh, there's the election in Victoria, and Chairman Dan, he was one of the nuttiest of these guys with, you know, you can't go more than three miles from your home, and he had police officers beating up uh, old people, disabled people, uh, pregnant ladies if they ventured out of their house, or even if they announced on Facebook they were planning to venture back into the world. So I have learned uh, some sad things these last three years about a system that is still, uh, in many ways, I think a very enviable system of uh, societal organization. Simon Arnold says, Hi Mark, happy Thanksgiving to everyone and a happy 20th birthday to the Mark Stein Club. I've been listening to your comments, Mark, about the British Empire. I feel this would be a good time to bring it back. It would solve so many problems because instead of them coming to us in the UK, we would already be over there in most of these countries already. Hope the club and all the other shows continue long into the future. I wish I had discovered these 20 years earlier. Well, Simon... Uh, <laughs> You you are right to a degree, except the people who are now coming into the UK, for example, are not coming. There's imperial immigration. There always has been uh, to one degree or another because there was no distinction made between His Majesty's subjects in Kingston-on-Thames vis-a-vis His Majesty's subjects in Kingston, Jamaica or Kingston, Ontario or whatever. And that's, in fact, uh, whatever it is, the 1948 British Nationality Act basically gave a quarter of the world's population permission to move to the UK. Different, different times, different world, as we would now say, although we don't say it about stupid things like the UN Human Rights Convention. So now the people who are coming... And by the way, there's a huge difference between if you have a fella uh, coming from... Uh, say, uh, Waziristan in uh, 1950 to live in, you know, uh, West Bromwich. He's someone who's had an education that is not that different from what the guy in West Bromwich has been having. They were, they were taught the same thing. That's not true now. But what is even more amazing is the way people are just coming from countries that have no historical correct connection to Britain. They just know it's a soft here and now of 2022. It's a soft touch with a generous welfare state. Michael Cavino says, Hi, Mark. Happy Thanksgiving to you and fellow club members celebrating around the world. And congratulations on 20 years of the website. It's a website I often tell my friends and colleagues to visit for the quality writing. Given it is the holiday season, I'd love to know what are your favorite Christmas albums, sans your own, which you play at this time of year. I'm preparing some playlists for our celebrations. Thanks in advance. Best regards, Michael. Uh, well, actually, my own album. <laughs> it's not my own. I, I did it with... Uh, Jessica Martin but I do actually think that's quite I'm very pleasantly pleased uh, if I ever slip that on and listen to it and the way it flows I do enjoy that so I have 
I do, I do, uh, I do like that. Uh, and I am quite pleased with it. What I find interesting about Christmas albums is there's people who are, uh, I think, have a natural have a natural feeling for it and then there's others who are just doing it because they've been told to do a Christmas album but like Nat King Cole he's just great so even songs I don't like on Nat Cole's album like Caroling Caroling which I find a vague rather dreary song uh, but I like Nat Cole singing it because I Nat Cole has a very natural feel when it comes to Christmas Bing same thing with Bing uh, I would say, even like Bing, even when the song is total rubbish, actually, like Christmas in Killarney, uh, I, I prefer, I, 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 they work as like general Christmas figures. And if you compare it with, say, Frank Sinatra, I, I find Frank a much more sort of problematic figure with uh, Christmas songs. You know, there's there's some he just sort of doesn't connect with. There's then there's some where he'll uh, commission one from Sammy Khan and Jimmy Van Heusen, and they'll just you know they'll slough it off, and it doesn't do it. And then I find with Sinatra, for example, that uh, I forget what album this is, but it's like one side he does secular songs, and the other side you flip it over, and he's doing. Uh, religious cows, and I find Sinatra, Sinatra's versions of uh, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear and O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem uh, rather rather pleasing. So I, I, I enjoy those. Um, and I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm touched by those. Uh, those rendered, particularly the young Sinatra in the forties, uh, I'm I'm touched by that. And then there's one. Occasionally, I'll, you know, hear hear something these days. I think uh, that's quite a that's quite a good thing. I quite liked. Uh, I used to like. I'm not sure I quite like it as much as I did because, to me, uh, Richard Carpenter's arrangements have dated. Uh, actually, being as how I made the point earlier. I think I should uh, correct myself and say actually his orchestrations have dated, but I used to, I thought the song selection and Karen Carpenter's voice on the Carpenter's Christmas album was excellent. Okay, that's uh, that's enough now. I know people think what are we November twenty fifth? So all those terrible uh, Christmas album Christmas song stations have already started going, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> And we've still got weeks to go, so I shouldn't talk myself out on uh, this uh, topic. Um, Wanda Sherratt says, Dear Mark, a showbiz question. Last night my husband and I watched Harvey with Jimmy Stewart, and I noticed that this movie was based on a play that used to be very common in movie credits, but it almost never happens now. When did the legitimate theatre... Uh, stop being a cultural force. It now seems to be in the range of opera, a former popular art form that's now just preserved for an irrelevant elite. Um, yeah, that's true, because it's the, there's a natural progression to these things, that you go from, from uh, the printed word to a stage play to a film. That's a natural progression. If you notice now, if you go to... 
Broadway, uh, the shows are all based on films. They take something like Elf, which was a mildly amusing comedy, whatever it was, 15 years ago, and turn it into a musical. That's a, that is an offense against the natural order. But because the American straight play is virtually dead, it's just driven... And there's economic reasons that play a part, but the bigger reason is that uh, they've driven themselves down a particular cul-de-sac. When What I find, it like for, to, to take someone who's widely admired as a Broadway figure... Stephen Sondheim, and I remember saying to I couldn't get over the people, oh, Stephen Sondheim, he, when does he ever surprise you? In terms of the, he and his librettists, the fellows who write the books, the dialogue, when does he ever surprise, surprise you with the politics of the thing? Assassins, which is his play about assassinated, the guys who killed American presidents. That's the view, his, his views were utterly conventional for a man of his time and place. So the theatre became very boring, just totally boring. The plays became a minority interest because there, where people, people who agreed with the playwright would go along basically to applaud themselves for holding the correct attitudes. And your larger point, Wanda, again, this is why, um, to go back to that point about not being able to fight a culture war if you don't produce any culture, is that we have lost, we accepted the loss of certain forms, like opera, basically, as a popular art form, died with Puccini in 1924, as I've said many times. And people write that off and say, well, we don't need opera anymore. We've got, like, superhero movies, so we got new stuff that the... You know, we've got new stuff that those guys didn't have, you know. So it's great if you've got, like, an opera that's playing, but they don't have guys, like, flying around the sky in, uh, in, 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 in brightly coloured long underwear. That's her. We, we've come up with new stuff. But in fact, that's just old and clapped out too, because all the superheroes when are either date from the 1930s, like Superman, Batman, Captain America, or they were invented 25 years later uh, uh, when Stan Lee uh, put Marvel comics together and came up with Spider-Man and the X-Men and the Avengers and all the rest of it. So even that is now, those guys are half a century or... Uh, eight, uh, eight decades old. We, we are an exhausted culture, both in terms of high culture and popular culture. And it's really freaky and creepy that we don't think that's weird. And again, we have this now, we have these affirmative action policies at publishing houses and at movie studios where they don't even care whether the book makes back its advance or the film is of no interest to anybody, because that's not what it's about. It's, it's, um, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity here. You know, as well as I do, that many of the authors we featured on Tales for Our Time are, are men of the left, like H.G. Uh, Wells, for example. But H.G. Wells had insights that transcend his politics and his time. And we should, in some strange way, 
the, the, if we if we ignore it, because the trouble is, the trouble is, by the time you start having a political argument about transgender sports, the argument has been won in the culture, and it's been won in the culture, basically in the absence of any pushback. Of, of any alternative view, because it, because in effect we give a billion dollars to a complete total schmucko loser like Mitt Romney. I mean, can you think of anything more stupid than blowing a billion dollars on Mitt Romney? Uh, and you think of the number of off-Broadway plays you could have done for a billion billion dollars. Interesting question, Wanda. Interesting question. David Lester says, Mark, what do you think? are the events of the past 20 years that we will look back on and consider seminal world-changing moments or events. What would be your top five such events? I think sometimes it's hard to understand the gravitas of an event while we are going through it. Um, I, would have, I would have agreed... Well, I tell you, I'll tell you from the event and what it means are two different things. So I would say when you talk about the last uh, 20 years, for example, I would say the, the event is 9-11. What it meant for me is that six months after 9-11, I was in Vienna and happened to be waiting for someone outside a maternity shop. I wasn't, I hadn't intended, I was across the street from the maternity shop, I don't hang around maternity shops unless I'm uh, expecting myself. But uh, I happened to be, and and the person I was waiting for was uh, 10, 15 minutes late, and I just suddenly noticed all the people going into the maternity shop were covered women in Vienna. So the event was 9-11. What it revealed to me was the demographic weakness of the Western world, and uh, and the fact that uh, that Islam was resurgent because, as Colonel Gaddafi told Europe, we're going to conquer you through the wombs of our women. Uh, then, for example, a couple of years later, we got the Danish Mohammed cartoons. Again, the cartoons are the event. What they told me is that the West will not defend core liberties, that it will indulge in these tiresome charades where uh, if you happen to have the misfortune like the poor Charlie Hebdo guys to get shot to death by uh, Islamic uh, murderers breaking into your office and killing you, oh, we'll hold a candlelight vigil, we'll all march in the street holding pencils. If there happens to be some award ceremony, uh, we'll get uh, George Clooney to uh, have uh, a pencil lapel badge and we'll get uh, Helen Mirren to wear a pencil brooch on her splendid en bon point. Uh, but we're not really interested. We have no genuine commitment to freedom of speech. So what happened then was that uh, the we 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 would we would uh, that told me we would ex essentially accept Islamic st the Islamic restrictions 
on freedom of speech, which has pretty much come to pass. Salman Rushdie couldn't find anyone to publish the satanic verses if he were to submit it now. Then the next thing um, uh, that I I think, uh, I'm trying to work out, that goes, uh, let me work out, uh, what, what was the next thing? I've completely forgotten what it was. And then, as I said, what is interesting, which I think you're wrong slightly here, you do see it in hard to understand the gravitas of an event while you're going through it. Well, I think I think it became pretty clear uh, during the... Oh, yeah, then the next thing, by the way, the SARS, I would say the SARS outbreak, outbreak because China did all the things that China did again with the COVID and paid no price for it. And that was useful. I'm talking about the SARS epidemic, uh, whatever it was, 19 years ago, uh, where it killed a bunch of people. Um, But basically, China got away with lying to the world. Uh, Then I would say, you know, the fourth thing, the, the Brexit and Trump votes in the year 2016, basically people had been pushed uh to but well i'll i'll say another thing too 2008 that was that revealed that essentially um the 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 flim flam of global markets and all the rest of it Uh, so you had the economic downturn and both bush and obama agreed that the important thing is to protect uh the status and the wealth of the people who had screwed everything up Uh, then you just nudge it on a bit. People are getting sick of this. People are getting sick of the fact that the great... You can can live on... Run on the fumes of a glorious past for a bit, but eventually that starts to sputter. And so people got tired and they elected Trump and uh, they voted for Brexit. And here we are. Here we are. And so Trump and Brexit are the events and what it tells us is that the elites, the people who run Western society, won't put up with uh, you uh, moving outside your bounds. We arrange democratic politics as these little distractions for you. Oh, Fetterman, Oz, Oz, Fetterman, Fetterman, Oz, Oz, Fetterman. Uh, we, We cast the play so badly that one of the characters can't actually talk you know, uh, but we've arranged these diversions and you content yourself with those. If you want anything else, it ain't happening. Something went wrong. We were all sitting on the beach of the Bahamas when the Trump and the Brexit thing happened. Uh, so we took our eye off the ball for a moment, but it's not going to happen again. And then the same thing, uh, again, just finally, obviously the, the current thing, COVID. And Every Western society, that's the thing, there's a pandemic, that's the event. What it means is this weird thing where every Western society reacts in the same way, implements the same policy, disparages the same ivermectin uh, or vitamin D, and imposes the same vaccines. That's the meaning of that event. Thank you very much for that question, David. A very interesting uh, one uh, on our 20th birthday show. And certainly people will have alternative 
views of that. Uh, we're going to have a little bit more music before we close things out because it's not just our 20th birthday, but we're actually wishing a happy 90th birthday to Petula Clark, who's been a star for eight decades now. Back in her child star days in the Second World War, Pafé Films uh, did a little feature on her. Let his mammy with eyes so shiny blue. That's my kid. No wonder Corporal Clark was proud when he heard his little girl on the wireless singing for him. When the postman brought little Petula Clark a pile of letters after her first broadcast, she was surprised. She's used to it now because she's become a regular star with a regular fan mail. But when she's at school, she forgets all about being a star and puzzles over the same things that bother most schoolgirls. In fact, don't look now, but sometimes she has to rub it out and do it again. A good all-round scholar, but not brilliant. That's what teacher calls her. Well, she seems to have the answer right this time. And when playtime comes, Petula's always well in the picture. Here she is rehearsing with Miriam Reed, her accompanist, auntie to Petula. Petula Clark's very like any other little girl, enjoying the same things that her friends enjoy. But more than anything else, she loves singing. And the public loves Petula, especially the soldiers, whom she reminds of their own kids at home. Young Petula Clark, uh, and here she is 80 years later. That's unusual with child stars. Here's a number one record of hers from the late 1960s. Charlie Chaplin wrote the words and music for a movie of his, A Countess from Hong Kong, and he'd conceived it deliberately as an old-fashioned song, so he wanted Al Jolson to sing it. Mammy! 
Uh, and they had to break the news to Charlie Chaplin that Al Jolson had been dead for many years, and Chaplin didn't believe it. And eventually, they had to get someone over in California to take a photograph of Al Jolson's grave and mail it to Charlie Chaplin in Switzerland. So then Chaplin remembered his neighbour in Switzerland, uh, who was a singer, and thought, oh, maybe that nice lady Petula Clark would be right for it. And Pet hated the song and demanded that at the very least Chaplin rewrite the lyric because it was so old-fashioned. And he refused. And if you heard our non-stop nearly number one special we did three years ago about number two hits, you'll have heard me talking to Harry Seacombe of The Goon Show uh, and Harry recorded this song and they had to do a zillion takes because every time he reached the line, I care not what the world may say, he got a fit of the giggles, which may be why his version only got to number two. As I said, Petula Clark had a lot of hits in French. So Pierre Delano wrote her a French lyric, which is nothing like the English lyric. And she liked it, although uh, Monsieur Delano disliked the tune and thought it was all wrong for Pet. Um, so then they asked the aforementioned Tony Hatch to arrange uh, the song with the French lyric, and he refused because he thought it was a stinker. Uh, and so they wound up with Ernie Freeman, who did Sinatra's arrangement for Strangers in the Night. And at the end of the session, they had 20 minutes left over. And Sonny Burke, who was producing, said, tell you what, Pet, just to fill up the time, why don't you record the English word? So she did uh, and said uh, it could be used in the film, but under no circumstances were <laughs> uh, Pi Records, her uh, UK record company, <laughs> even to think about releasing it as a single. Well, it was number one all over the map. This is my song. This is now and forever Pet Clark's song. Why is my heart so light? Why are the stars so bright? Why is the sky so blue? Since the hour I met you Flowers are smiling bright Smiling for our delight Smiling so tenderly For the world, you and me I know why the world is smiling Smiling so tenderly It hears the same old story Through all eternity Without your love 
Tula Clark singing Charlie Chaplin, and she sings that song to this day. Happy 90th birthday to a towering talent, and happy 20th birthday to Stein Online. Over this anniversary weekend, we shall have a special edition of the 100 Years Ago Show, a special edition of the Mark Stein Show, and a special edition of Stein's Song of the Week. Stay safe, stay free. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oakville Media. All rights reserved.